Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members of one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy, according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. I call your attention to verses 15 through 18. The text which Consistory has chosen as the theme text for our season of family visitation. 15 through 18. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, Live peaceably with all men. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans teach us the great truths of the gospel of Christ, beginning with the truth that the whole world, including us, is guilty before God because all human beings, including us, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God commendeth his love toward us, the apostle goes on to say in chapter 5, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he justified us by his blood, which he shed on the cross. Therefore, because of Christ's death on the cross, God justifies us freely by his grace through faith in Christ. 
The Apostle goes on to add the great truth of sanctification in chapter 6, that although by nature we were slaves to sin and the law, who could do nothing but sin, God has set us free, and he has made us to be the servants of righteousness and holiness, who more and more strive to walk in the ways of the Lord. The Apostle goes on in chapter 8 to teach us the tremendous comfort that we have, as was read earlier after lunch, the great chapter that teaches us of our predestination to be conformed to the glory of God, to the image of his Son. He predestinated us to be justified and to be glorified, and if we are God's elect, then God is the one who justifies us, and who can condemn us? Who can separate us from the love of God? that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He goes on to point out the great comfort that election is in chapter 9 when he points out the fact that he will be merciful to whom he will be merciful and God will harden whom he will harden. So what a comfort to know that we are among those whom God has chosen to be merciful to. We are among his elect. He concludes at the end of chapter 11 by saying, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that leads into chapter 12. In chapter 12, the apostle begins the section of his epistle in which he brings exhortation to the church. Having set down the great truths of the gospel of our salvation, now he says, Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies living sacrifices to God, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you might identify what the will of God is and do the will of God in your life so that you will be changed from world-conforming people to God-following people. Then he proceeds to give this long list of exhortations, which we read earlier. And what we need to understand as we enter into our text this afternoon is that all of these specific exhortations do not merely come to us as individual Christians, as if We are just a bunch of people living separate lives. But these exhortations come to us as members of the body of Christ, who all together make up a body who are related to one another in Christ. So it's from that viewpoint that I call your attention to the exhortations of our text, verses 15 through 18, the theme for our family visits this year under the theme exhorted to love thoughtfully as members of Christ's body. Let's notice, first of all, the calling to rejoice with those who rejoice. Secondly, to walk in humility and meekness. And finally, to strive for unity and peace. The exhortation the apostle brings to us in the text is, first of all, that we rejoice with them who do rejoice. We begin with that beautiful calling that is telling us to participate in the joy of others as well as in the sorrow of others. And more particularly, the joy and the sorrow of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and even more particularly, the fellow members of this particular church where we have our membership. Now, it is certainly true that we may also congratulate our neighbors who are outside of the church when some good thing happens in their life that we become aware of. Or we may sympathize and express condolences to our neighbors who are not Christians when we hear of some evil that has fallen upon them in their life. And in fact, that is one of the great ways to witness to our unbelieving neighbors that when we see good things happening to them, we celebrate or 
congratulate them for those things in a Christian manner. And when we hear about some evil or suffering or death that has occurred in their family, that we take the opportunity to bear witness of the providence of God over all things and the goodness of God, that all prosperity comes from God and so does adversity. And for us who belong to Christ, we have comfort. But the exhortation of our text is primarily that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice in the church and we are to weep with those who weep in the church. In other words, we are to do this at a much deeper level with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the same congregation. Now we might ask, why does the apostle exhort us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep? And the answer is that we here in the Wingham Protestant Reformed Church are not just a group of individuals who all happen to worship together in the same building. But we are, as Paul says in this chapter, a body of Christ, one body with many members, who are all knit together, who are interconnected, interdependent, and who need each other. So, for example, in verses 4 and 5, the apostle says, For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. He teaches the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and there he elaborates on this idea of the church as a body and says, The eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. He goes on in the same chapter to say, And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members in particular. So Paul is not merely teaching that the whole universal church is the body of Christ, but also the local church is a manifestation of the body of Christ. We, you, are the body of Christ and members in particular. That means that Christ did not merely die for me, and I must not think that way, but I must remember that Christ also died for my fellow church members with whom I worship from Sunday to Sunday. Christ not only loves me and my family and my relatives and friends, but he also loves the other families and the other members of the congregation just as much as he loves us. Christ has not only knit me into the body of Christ, but also the other members and the other families. Christ has given gifts to me, and he has given a certain measure of those gifts to me, but he has also given gifts to the other members in a certain measure. The apostle speaks of that also in the passage in verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, and then he lists various gifts. Christ gives a variety of gifts in varying measures. Now what this all means is that I need you and you need me, and you need each other. And none of us may ever think or say to ourselves, I don't need that person or that family, or the opposite, they probably don't need me. There's probably nothing that I really have to offer to contribute to the congregation. And that's what Paul is getting at in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, the eye must never say, I don't need the foot. But then the hand must never say, well, the rest of the body doesn't really need me. Those are two possible errors that we have to avoid. Neither thinking that we are the ones needed or thinking that we are the ones who are not needed. We are all needed. We are all necessary members. And the greatest gift that Christ gives is one that he gives to all of us. It's the gift of love. That comes out in Corinthians where he says that we are to follow the more excellent way of love. 
and the greatest of all these gifts is love, comes out in this chapter as well. When after he lists all those gifts, he says in verse 9, let love be without dissimulation. The greatest is love. And we are called to exercise that love and to do so thoughtfully in the midst of the congregation. To be considerate, to be thoughtful of one another. And so we come back to the main exhortation that we're dealing with in the first point. He says, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that do weep. Now this activity certainly implies a couple of things. First of all, that whole reality of the church life that we share with one another as members of this congregation. The fact is, we, we are all members of this church. We do all worship in this place every Lord's Day. We do all have our names on the same church directory. We do read the same bulletins. We hear the same announcements and receive the same news, which means that we know each other to a certain extent, and we know what's going on to a certain extent. We know who got elected to be elder or deacon. We know who just graduated from high school or college. We know who got a promotion at their job. We know who is engaged to be married next summer and who is expecting another baby next fall. We know these things because we know each other. And therefore, the calling is that we rejoice with each other and we weep with each other. We also know if one of our fellow members has lost a loved one recently. We know if they're experiencing some kind of sickness or disease or surgery. We know if one of our fellow church members is estranged from their children or from their friends or from their parents for one reason or another. We know certain things about each other. And the calling then is, since we need each other and we are to love each other thoughtfully, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But certainly this calling also implies that we seek to build closer relationships with each other. It's true that we all know each other and we do know many things about each other and we find those things out just by virtue of being members of this congregation. But if we are to rejoice with the other members and weep with the other members on a deeper level on the things that really matter, the things that maybe we don't know about yet, that means that we need to get to know each other better. We need to build closer relationships with each other. And we do that in a number of ways. We can do that simply by talking to each other after church, at lunchtime, after the morning service, after the afternoon service. Take time to talk to each other, and not just to talk to the people that we always talk to, but also to talk to the people we don't always talk to, to get to know more about them. It also could be done through showing hospitality. We read in verse 13 the exhortation that we are to be given to hospitality. Hospitality means that you show love to strangers or to people that you don't know that well. We can show hospitality to our own children and to our own parents and friends, but really, true hospitality is shown to people you don't know that well. And so, it would involve inviting over to your house someone from the congregation that you don't know very well. Maybe if you're a younger couple, one of the older couples, or if you're an older couple, one of the younger couples, to get to know them better. It would mean that when we have new visitors in the church, we certainly don't know them very well, that we would invite them over to our houses too to get to know them. But now, if we're going to rejoice with them when they rejoice and weep with them when they weep, that means we need to have good conversation and communication. We don't just get together and chit-chat about the weather and sports and business. We don't just shoot the breeze but we actively, thoughtfully take an interest in each other's lives. That means that we want to know what's going on in the life of our brother or sister or this visitor. So we ask questions, we inquire. How are you doing? What's going on in your life right now? How are things at work? How are your children doing at school? 
Have you been well? How are your aging parents? I heard that they're not doing so well. What are your plans for your business? I heard things are going well. How do you look forward in the future? What do you see coming? And when we ask questions like that, and we get to know each other better, something happens. We develop a stronger, firmer relationship with them. As we grow to trust each other, to respect each other, and to love each other, then that relationship can get deeper and deeper. If we're not willing to open up, if we're not willing to share things, then that relationship will not grow deeper. But when we trust our brothers and sisters and respect them and we're willing to share and to open up, we will find that our relationships grow deeper and stronger. Then we will start to find that we're sharing things and they're sharing with us things that are the most personal and private things, the most personal joys and sorrows maybe even moral struggles that they've had in their life with this or that, but the Lord has given them victory over it, and now they're sharing it with you because they trust you, and they know that you love them. We might share with them our struggles as well. So these kinds of relationships and strengthening of relationships is all necessary if we are going to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now the exhortation itself, more specifically. Rejoice with those who rejoice. The temptation, of course, is to be envious and jealous of others when we see them succeeding. When we see that their life is going well, when we see that they're happy, when we see that they're successful in their business, in their marriage, in their family, everything goes well for them, the temptation is not to rejoice with them, but to be envious, to be jealous. And that's especially true if we are personally struggling in the very areas where they're succeeding. The temptation, on the other hand, not to weep with those who weep, is to ignore our brothers and sisters in Christ in their sufferings. Or maybe we hear about it, but then we forget about it, and we're not really thinking about it. We're not really thoughtful of them. That's the temptation. And it's especially true if we've never experienced what they're going through, or if we just find it hard to relate to them. Then especially, the temptation is just to ignore it and kind of forget about it. But the apostle says, no. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That means that when we hear that so-and-so is engaged to get married, we're truly happy for them. We put ourselves in their shoes, and we think to ourselves, there's a thoughtfulness there. We think to ourselves how we felt when we got engaged, or how we would feel if we were to get engaged, or when we find out that so-and-so is expecting a child, their first, their second, their third. We put ourselves in their shoes, and think how I would feel or how I did feel when we were expecting. Or you hear that their business is doing well. And even if my business is not doing well, we think to ourselves, I'm happy for him because if my business was doing well, I know I'd be happy. That's what it means to rejoice with those who rejoice. And all the more so when we hear about the spiritual and moral victories of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We rejoice with them. We celebrate with them. Maybe we go out of our way to send them a card or flowers or to try to visit with them if they're willing to have us over or for us to have them over to celebrate whatever great thing has happened in their life. And it means that when we hear that they've lost a loved one, We hear that they're sick, or their loved one is sick, or their child is going through a difficult time. That we weep with them, we empathize, we sympathize, we put ourselves thoughtfully in their shoes and realize, if I lost my loved one, that would hurt. And even though maybe I haven't lost my loved one, we try to put ourselves in their shoes to rise above our selfish complacency, 
to expand our hearts with compassion and empathy. That's the calling of the text. And that may lead even to actual weeping of tears for the sorrows of others. After all, we are a family. That's what the apostle teaches us. We're a body of Christ and members in particular. So that first of all. Now, in the second place, the apostle would have us consider this exhortation, that we mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. We could translate that this way, perhaps. Do not set your mind on the things that are high and lofty by the standards of this world, but humble yourself. Come down from your lofty throne and interact with the little people who are of no account in the eyes of the world. And do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. It's probably a fact that generally, the higher we rise in life, whether in wealth or education or influence, status, position, the higher we rise in any way, the greater is the temptation to mind high things, to set our minds on the higher things, because we're going up. So we set our minds on the higher things, the pinnacle of success in our line of work, the peak of power or honor in the church, the people who are at the top, dreams and fantasies of joining them there at the top, climbing the ladder and being the best that we can be in this life so that constantly our mind is set on the things that are high, we're trying to climb that ladder up there to be with the high and mighty. The apostle does not condemn success. Scripture never condemns wealth. It doesn't condemn a position or an office of honor. It doesn't say that it's wrong to be in a place where you are high, where you are on a pinnacle. But it says, don't set your mind on it. Don't focus on it, so that you're constantly trying to steer your life higher and higher. But rather, condescend to men of low estate. He adds this exhortation as well, Be not wise in your own conceits. We could translate that, Be not wise in your own opinion, in your own sight, in your own eyes. Don't think of yourself as wise. Earlier in verse 3, he has said, right at the beginning of this set of exhortations, I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Soberly. According as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. God has given a measure of faith and wisdom to all of us who are his children. We all have a measure of wisdom. We have wisdom. But we are not to think of ourselves as wise. We are not to have a high opinion of ourselves. We are not to think that we are wiser than other people in the church so that maybe they need us, but we start to think that We don't really need them that much. The idea of condescending to men of low estate is not, we're going to go way down to the lowly people because we have the wisdom and they need it, and we're going to give it to them, and we're going to show them a thing or two about life. That's not the idea. Because he immediately says, after condescend to men of low estate, don't be wise in your own opinion. Don't think of yourself that way. We need to beware when we walk into a room or we're sitting in a room, say maybe the Bible study room or the consistory room or the room at classes. If we ever get into our minds the idea that we're one of the wisest people in this room, 
if not the wisest. Because then we start to think, well, why doesn't anybody recognize how wise I am? And we start to lose patience with other people. We start to have no time for them. We don't think that we need to listen to them. We think they should be listening to us. We don't think there's much to learn from them. We think they should be learning from us. Why aren't they willing to learn from me? Why aren't they willing to listen to me? When really the scriptures are always telling us, you need to listen to them. We think of James chapter 1 where he says we are to be slow to speak, slow to wrath, swift to hear. Listening is really an art that can be developed and needs to be practiced. Sometimes we're hearing the words that someone is saying, but we're not really listening. Maybe we're even listening a little bit, but we're not listening carefully. We're not giving them our wholehearted attention. And so we're missing all kinds of things that they're saying. We're not following their logic. We're not understanding their argument. And we've already dismissed it before we really even heard them. Really, that's being wise in our own conceits. Because we think we already have the answers and we don't need to listen to them. So the apostle wants us to recognize we don't have all the wisdom. We are often wrong. We are often misguided. Our logic, which sometimes we trust implicitly, is often flawed, and it leads us astray. We are sometimes illogical, if we can imagine that. And that's why we need each other, you see. Because in the multitude there is wisdom. And we have to learn from them, and they have to learn from us too. But our focus is to be, what wisdom can I gain from others? I've often thought that wisdom can be found in strange and unexpected places. You can condescend to men of low estate thinking that you're going to go and help them, but then you find that in the process, they helped you. You're going to share something with them, and they end up encouraging you. So condescending to men of low estate means that instead of minding high things, constantly having our minds looking up to the better and the higher and the greater, we turn our attention around. We look down. Who is in need? We look toward the poor and the low-income people, the simple and uneducated folks, the weak and uninfluential members of the body, the shy and reclusive types, the widows and loners, the bedside of the sick and dying. And you can think of many other examples, men and women of low estate. They're not in the limelight. They're not in the middle of things. They don't have lots of wealth and power and influence. Apostle says, turn away your attention from the high and mighty things. Focus on men of low estate. And go and visit them. And go and befriend them. And go and talk to them and help them. That's where you're needed. And the reason for that can be found in Christ himself. Is he not the only begotten Son of God who is a person of lofty estate, of the heavenly throne, but condescended into this world to us men of low estate, because after all, every single one of us is a man or a woman of low estate. We're all lowly. We're all human beings in comparison to God. We're all like little ants in comparison to the Almighty. But the great God and Savior came down to the earth. He condescended to us. He became a man and walked among us. And he humbled himself even unto death, even the death of the cross. Not a glorious death, 
so that he could draw all kinds of attention to himself for the gloriousness of his sacrifice. It was a bitter and shameful death, hanging there naked on the cross, shedding his precious blood. He did that for us. And he did that. He went so low in order to bring us so high, to raise us up into heavenly places. And so the apostle says, you follow your Savior and you do likewise. And humble yourself. And then he also calls us to meekness. He does that when he says in verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. As the members of the body of Christ, our calling is in humility then to practice meekness as well. Meekness means not just that you have a mild and gentle spirit, but meekness is more of an attitude and a choice that you make when someone does harm to you. It's a choice that God leads his children to make when evil is done to you. It's the conscious decision not to do evil in return. That's not something that comes naturally. That's the grace of God at work, moving us to love our enemies. We are called to remember as Christians that if someone does evil to me, and if that person who did evil to me is an enemy of the cross of Christ, even then, I'm not to recompense evil for evil. But I can take comfort in the knowledge that God will send Christ again to judge the living and the dead. And vengeance belongs to him. He will take care of it. He will do that at the judgment of the living and the dead. But if the person who did evil to me is a fellow member of the congregation, whether they did physical evil or emotional harm, whether they talked about me or criticized and judged me unreasonably, and harshly. I'm not to do evil in return. I may go to the person. I may tell them their fault. I may ask them to apologize and to see the sinfulness of what they did, but I may not recompense evil for evil. I may not go around talking behind their back, go around spreading rumors about them, stabbing them, insult for insult, Punch for punch, slap for slap, evil for evil. That's what the apostle is exhorting us not to do. That's the opposite of meekness. Meekness means you take the hurt and you find comfort and healing from that hurt in the knowledge that you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and that he doesn't hurt you ever. You find your comfort there and you find your contentment there and you rest there and you don't have any need to return evil for evil then. There too we follow our Savior, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he was slapped, slapped not again. When he was spit upon, did not spit back. But he went as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. He opened not his mouth. He gave himself over to his enemies. And he died for us who were his enemies so that he might redeem us. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And provide things honest in the sight of all men. That's the second part of verse 17. And perhaps we could translate that this way. Give thought to what is the honorable thing to do. That word provide can be translated that way, but it can also be translated give thought Give careful thought to what is the honest, right, honorable thing to do in this situation. For example, when someone does evil to you. What is the honorable and the right thing to do? Then the apostle shows us what is the greatest, and it's love. Let love be without dissimulation, he says. Whenever I read that, I always wonder, what is dissimulation? And a simpler word is hypocrisy or insincerity. What he's saying there is 
love with a genuine love. Not just an exterior face, an internal love, so that in your heart, you love that person. You're not pretending to love him while in your heart nurturing these feelings of resentment and desire for revenge, but you have a love that is without hypocrisy. He calls us to, verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Be kindly affectioned. Be affectionate. Show affection, kindness, gentleness toward your brothers and sisters in the church. In honor, preferring one another, verse 10 says. That is, you prefer that your brother will be honored instead of you. You give preference, you give deference to your brethren. It's not that you think you deserve that honor, you deserve that place, but you prefer that they would have it. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, etc., etc. These are the exhortations that come to us as members of the body of Christ. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be humble about yourself and in your behavior to others. Be meek when they do evil to you. And when we walk in these ways, we will find that the result is unity and peace in the congregation. And we'll find that that peace and harmony that prevails is a firm basis for us to work through conflicts and controversies when they arise. And that's how we conclude the sermon this afternoon, the third point, where he says, be of the same mind one toward another, and if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. First of all, be of the same mind one toward another. Be like-minded. Think the same things. Be on the same page. Be one in your doctrines, in your beliefs, in your values. And that, first of all, and that most importantly, it's a calling, first of all, always to to confess and maintain together the essential truths of God's word without wavering. It means that together we maintain those truths and we reject all heresies. We all together reject the many errors that have propagated throughout the church, throughout history, and that continue to spread throughout the world today. Together, together, we say, this is what God's word means, and this is what it teaches, and we don't believe that. We make that promise when we do confession of faith. Do you promise to adhere to this doctrine and reject all heresies that are repugnant thereto? Yes, I do. And we all make that promise so that we are of one mind in a congregation. And that's most important. And then, when controversy comes up, when there's conflict about, let's say, the finer points of doctrine, or when there's conflict even about the manner of teaching the chief points of doctrine, then we have this good, firm foundation and that we love each other, we respect each other, and now we can debate those finer points and we should be able to come to oneness of mind. Sometimes that takes place through consistory, sometimes through protests, sometimes at classes, appeals, sometimes all the way to synod. But in all of these ways, we are to endeavor for oneness of mind in our doctrine. And as we are debating controversial points, sometimes they're just the finer points, sometimes they're weighty matters, but it has to do with whether or not someone has taught a false doctrine or not, then we are to be patient with each other, long-suffering and striving always to come to oneness of mind, be of the same mind. And that applies to practical matters, too. 
Now, there are many, many practical things about which we can have all kinds of opinions, and that's totally fine. But sometimes there come up things in the church that are significant practical matters. For example, the church budget that comes to the congregational meeting. And we all have to discuss that and approve that together. He says, be of one mind when you do that. You can discuss it, you can debate it, you can disagree, but do that in a brotherly way and strive to come together in one mind. Or maybe it has to do with what time we are to have our worship services. We can disagree about that. We can have different opinions about that. But when that becomes a matter of conflict and there's discussion about it, we must strive to come to one mind. And we do that by listening to each other. Listening and being ready to learn. Listening means we listen not just to the opinion, but what are the reasons behind that opinion? Why does my brother think that way? What is he driving at? Maybe he has a a significant point to make. Maybe he sees something significant, and we're open to learn. Or when we start up the Christian school again, we can get together and we can debate that, talk about that, weigh the pros and the cons all together. But the exhortation is, when you do that, be of one mind. Strive to stick together and come together. Strive to form one position as much as possible. And again, that involves a lot of listening. And it involves this too, a willingness to change your opinion. We have to remember sometimes that it's okay to change our opinion about practical matters like this. And we have to be willing through listening and learning to change our opinion on things when that will serve the good of the body. In John 17, our Lord Jesus Christ prayed in his last high priestly prayer, Father, I pray that they would all be one, even as we are one, that they would also be made perfect in unity. And then finally, the apostle exhorts us, if it be possible, as much as lieth in us, to live peaceably with all men. When we're walking in all of these things, there's going to be sweet peace in the congregation. The opposite of living peaceably, of course, is living contentiously. Having a quarrelsome, contentious, disagreeable attitude and behavior. Always fighting tooth and nail for my opinion, for my position. Always thinking that I'm right, not willing to change my opinion, not willing to listen. Now, the scriptures tell us we have to fight the good fight. And we can go back to that. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. That's true. Fight for what is good. Fight for what is true. Fight for what is right. But we are to live peaceably with our fellow fighters. We are to live peaceably with our fellow soldiers in Christ. We don't need to be always having our sword and shield out, swinging them around at everybody around us as if we're an army of one, as if we are all by ourselves fighting against everybody else. Everybody is our enemy. That's not the Christian life. That's not living peaceably if it is possible with all men. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 8 says, There is a time for war and there is a time for peace. There is a time for war. There is a good fight to be fought, but there's also a time for peace. And that is the peace that we can enjoy, that we may enjoy as brothers and sisters in Christ in the congregation in which we are all of one mind. Now, it takes wisdom to know whether we are in the company of brothers in Christ or enemies Because we know that it's possible that an enemy can sneak into a congregation clothed as an angel of light or a wolf in sheep's clothing. We know that's a reality. We do have to be on guard against that. Nevertheless, we're not to have suspicious attitudes about those who profess the faith and who walk in harmony with it. We need wisdom to live peaceably as much as possible and as much as in us lies.
Unfortunately, in this world, sometimes it's not possible to live peaceably with some confessing Christians. Sometimes it's not possible because those other confessing Christians refuse to acknowledge that we are Christians. Sometimes it's not possible because they persecute us. Sometimes it's not possible because they shun us. Sometimes it's not possible because they want nothing to do with peace. But as much as possible, and as much as lieth in you, Paul says, live peaceably with all men. That means do whatever you can, do whatever is in your power to live peaceably with your brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, with all men. Live peaceably with all men as much as possible. And that includes our neighbors outside the church. And indeed, this will be part of our witness as Christians when we show that we are not quarrelsome, contentious, revolutionary citizens in society, troublemakers. Now, they might call us troublemakers even when we're just fighting the good fight. Never mind that. But in general, we should be known as those who strive to live peaceably with our neighbors, who want to shine our light, who want to love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we're doing that, we're going to see opportunities open up to be witnesses to our neighbors of the hope that is in us. And just as we have peace in our hearts and enjoy peace in our congregation and strive to live peaceably with them, we might have the opportunity to share the gospel of peace with our neighbor. When they wonder, how do you have such peace in your soul? And we can then tell them about Jesus. So may God grant us his spirit that we may strive to love thoughtfully. All of these things take a certain thoughtfulness. We put some thought into it. How we can walk in these ways in God's church with our brethren in Christ. And may God grant us that humility, that like-mindedness, that peacefulness, that we may be a shining witness to the world. Amen. Our gracious God and Father, we give thanks for thy word. We thank thee, Lord, how thou dost instruct us and guide us and exhort us. We thank thee, Lord, how thou hast led us into a time of unity and peace as a congregation. And we pray, Lord, continue to grant us humility of mind, lowliness of heart, love that is thoughtful and genuine. And we pray, Father, continue to maintain the peace and unity that we may be a witness to the world that Jesus is the Lord and Savior.